This is Making It Up, a weekly cultured news podcast focused on analyzing and debating whatever comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Kan. The format of this podcast is like catch up at the start, followed by two main items of news, one chosen by Eugene and one chosen by myself. We pick our topics from the Making Briefing, which is an email we send out twice a week filled with current news, interesting links, and more. On Making It Up, we talk through the things we're most interested in and try to come to some sort of conclusion on the state of culture, media, tech, food, whatever it may be in our modern times. Also, if you like this podcast, the best thing you can do for it is share your favorite episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. Make it up coming to you from a Sunday. Yes, an atypical schedule. Yeah, where were you? You were traveling. I was in Spain. I was in Seville and Ronda and Granada briefly. The last oh, that's nice. They're a little bit different from what people, I guess, usually hit up, right? Yeah, I didn't go to Madrid or Barcelona, which I think people had you been before. I had actually been before, so but it was nice. It was just really chill. The best part was tapas. I have so many food recommendations. So if anyone is going to Seville, Spain, let me know. Where did your recommendations come from, or you just found them on your own? I just found them on my own. I didn't get them anywhere. Me and Joan just did like some research um, and we got lucky part of the time. Nice. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many options. It's kind of funny because it's like a city that's saturated in one type of food. I think just Seville has 3,000 tapas restaurants and they don't have much variety. So if you want something else, like you're kind of out of luck. Did you guys go to any galleries or shows or anything like that? No, it was purely like a food and views trip. And she freelances. So we both did work while we were on the road. How are you doing? It's Sunday night here. It's 11 p.m. So I'm just trying to get through this. Wow. Okay, then. We shouldn't even do it. That's how you <laughs> feel about it. That's how no, you feel about actually, recording. No, actually, you know what? I was a little bit more excited earlier in the day when I was doing my research. But I think I'm just tired. Well, you did footy today, right? But anyway, you did something interesting yesterday. Yes. So Bedroom is a local... Hmm. How to best describe them? It's like a space that throws on various cultural events. It's actually right around the corner from our office. Yeah. And they do like art shows, zine festivals. This last Saturday, which was yesterday, they put on an event with 8-Ball Community, which is out of New York. It's interesting because I got put onto 8-Ball not that long ago. Probably not the cleanest definition of what they do, but basically they're just like a community of creators. And there's like a publishing arm. I'm sure there's like various sort of... uh cultural pillars underneath that but one of their members joyce was in hong kong and she Where teamed up with bedroom from? it's from new york oh okay i think dating back to like 2005 oh, cool. what they did was they did kind of like this zine festival of sorts with a bunch of panel discussions and they tapped megan yes to moderate them which was cool yeah it was really neat shout outs to angela and michael who were the organizers of the event um it was just really interesting because I think there was this sense of like rawness and not necessarily in a pejorative way, just like, hey, these are a bunch of people that are more in line with the actual act of creating something more than it needs to be super polished. And they did it in a way where it was still organized. Like just because it's raw doesn't mean it can't be organized and professional. Yeah. 
right? And I think that's really important because I felt like they did a great job. And we moderated three talks. One was a panel discussion between Caitlin from Queer Reads Library and Gabriel of Small Potatoes. Bit of context, Queer Reads Library was started by Caitlin after the Hong Kong government banned a series of books about LGBTQI stuff. And now it's kind of like this revolving pop-up library. So she'll go to events and bring those books so people can check them out. And Gabriel of Small Potatoes, it's a small publishing company out of Kingston, Canada. And they're basically interested in helping, you know, artists and creatives publish small runs of zines in a very sort of DIY approach. So I think the underlying event was focused around DIY culture. So that was a really interesting talk to see Caitlin's and Gabriel's perspective on the value of zines and how like the independence of those types of opportunities are really important. Uh, There was an Indian artist by the name of Dipali Anurag and what she does is, I don't know if you've heard of it actually. So she does these interesting paintings and instead of a paintbrush, she uses a vibrator. No, I haven't And it's a commentary around female sexuality and she's Indian but based in Asia. First Singapore and I think now Kuala Lumpur. Mm. And it's just interesting to see her kind of tackle the taboos of sexuality in Asia and doing it so confidently. That's cool. Actually, the work cut looks pretty cool. Like we'll share some photos um, in a few days. Yeah. And the last one was Joyce of Eight Ball herself. I mean, it's crazy because she just turned 18, but she just seems to have a very clear grasp of what sort of role creative culture can play. Like when I was 18, I don't know what you were thinking about when you were 18, but no one really took it that seriously. No. Like you just did it. And not to say you need to take it seriously, but it's just that when you're inserted into a community that has people of varying ages, Mm -hmm. I think that's what's really fascinating because there's a very strong mentorship approach Mm -hmm. to it because I didn't really have mentors when I was like 18. Like you just kind of did it and you kind of figured stuff out along the way. But to be put into a thing where you're 18, but you have people that that maybe they graduated, maybe they're actually working uh, in the creative world, like to have that access is is incredibly important. Yeah. I think it's really great that we could be a part of it or just have that. Even if we hadn't been a part of it, it's really great that it happened around the corner from us in Daiwajai. Yeah. And, and I was telling you this, it's like, you know, I think Michael and Angela are really good at having a vision. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was just interesting because this is the first time I met Angela and she works in finance as her day job. On the weekend, she's like doing bedroom. Oh. So it's kind of cool because like, I mean, Hong Kong is very much known as a financial hub and you have tons of people that work at all these major banks you've heard of. Mm-hmm. But for her to to have that opportunity, I think she was like really... Um, I think everyone just kind of felt this sense of inclusion. Like everyone was like, yo, you know what? It's always interesting because I think 10 years ago and also what you see now in New York, I guess the general sentiment was that it wasn't very welcoming. So like people were always trying to push their own agenda individually versus trying to come together and understand that we're not trying to be inherently competitive. We're actually all trying to achieve a common goal. And I think that's the one thing that has changed because even Joyce was saying like in New York, it'd be really hard for us to put on a similar event. And I was thinking like this event itself, I'm not I'm not trying to say that's simple, but it's just like, to me, it felt like it was 
it had a very strong sort of procedural element to it that mm -hmm. made it happen. But she was like saying like, maybe you wouldn't have money for like this and that, or we wouldn't have a space and all these other things. So it's really interesting to see how people from what you would deem to be a really strong creative hub, how they view what's going on in Hong Kong. Because I think the general sentiment is that what's happening in your backyard is never as good as what's elsewhere. Yeah, the grass is always greener. But I can see a lot of, I can understand where she's coming from. I think just the fact that the bedroom space exists and you can kind of do whatever you want with it, the that the obstacles are much lower that way. And so you don't have mm -hmm. to do something fancy. And I was also thinking maybe when you hold something in New York or London or a big city, there are expectations for what an event needs to be and it couldn't be that kind of raw energy. And what's interesting is that we've always asked people to email us uh -huh. and I'm starting to realize how useless of a, medium email can be at times. No, like man. Just, you can't hate on email. Email is pretty good. I love email when it works and people respond. But honestly, the chance of you getting a response on email Okay. So for our call lower. out, we should switch it to DM us on Instagram is what you're exactly. saying. I think that it's just way more interactive and easier for people to do. And the expectation is lower. Like you don't True. have to… Like it's just weird for someone to email you a two-sentence email. True. It's like, oh, why am I really emailing Eugene this one comment? Got it. Okay. Anyway, so from Never Not Rare Kev, who we know personally, he asked us about our daily habits. It wasn't really a question. He just said daily habits, exclamation mark. I have a pretty regimented <laughs> daily habit <laughs> thing. I'm laughing because I know it. This is going to be like the next 10 minutes though. No, but you know what's been very helpful is how to create constant reminders for yourself to adhere to them. So and how I think do you that's do that? A really so, powerful so, so talk thing. about well, that. First off, like what are things that you do every day that regardless of whether or not this is a new habit, like you'll do? Like for example, for you, like would you say making coffee is a habit you do every day? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, But I don't forget to do coffee, that. But that's the thing. If you don't forget, then can you put a note on your coffee mug take vitamins. Oh. So you're building it into oh, an existing pattern. So for me, like I check my to-do oh, list every single day. That's interesting. Yeah. So for example, like let's say, let's say you're always going to go into the bathroom and brush your teeth every yeah, single day. Yeah, I brush morning. my teeth You never forget. <laughs> and then you write on your mirror seven things you need to do. That's really good, Eugene. That's yeah. actually really good. Um, I have started a new daily habit. I... I think I told you this, but I downloaded Headspace and I've been trying that out. It's a meditation app and they have a thing where they have a streak. So they tell you how many days you've been meditating. But also the way it's mm -hmm. structured is that it's like a course. So they're sequential. So that keeps you going. All right. Another one from at XAOUX. This person asked, how do you pursue a creative career when you've already invested in a solid desk job at the age of 37? You're looking at me like I have the answer. I don't have the answer. I don't think you have the answer. I think, okay, this is my answer. I read once that it takes seven years to become an expert at something. And I actually okay. think that that's pretty encouraging as a stat because let's say you're optimistically, let's say you live until 70. And let's say, you know, you kind of find your footing when you're 21. So that would still give you like 50 years divided by seven. That's like seven times that you could become an expert in something different. So mm -hmm. that's what I think about like 
yes, I guess when you've reached 37, maybe the math is like, oh, I only have 20 to 30 years optimistically, like God willing. But I think that's still a lot of time. You could still, I mean, I don't know all of the obstacles in the way, whether that's financially or health, et cetera. But if it, if in terms of like the things that you've learned, I wouldn't put so much stock in it. Like, I think you can put aside all the things that you've learned. You don't have to necessarily build on that. I think that it really comes down to your purpose and your intent. And what is the difference between having an office job and then doing something on the side like moonlighting and taking photos on the side or painting or illustrating? Mm -hmm. That's one way of looking at it. But the second part of it is also being considerate of the fact that the constructs of time and like age are things that are imposed upon you externally more than they are internally. Like you'll have that internal pressure. But if you really think about it, if you're 37 and you don't have that creative career you want, what is the difference between being 37 and being 45 and having that creative career, even though you're starting from scratch? Like, I think that that's the one thing is we always are putting these comparative lanes. Yeah. Especially now more than ever, right? Where, fuck, you remember we talked about this with the Forbes 30 under 30 list where like people all of a sudden are meant to feel really shitty about themselves because they haven't achieved as much as this person. Mm -hmm. I may have brought this up before, but what what does come with having a stable job is probably a chance for you to save up some money potentially yeah. have some sort of uh consistency in your income mm-hmm. which hopefully can allow you to stretch out and or like provide a foundation if you do decide but i also think that in general it's like there's different ways of approaching it like there's to be a quote unquote creative professional might be something you strive to achieve, but there's nothing wrong with you only making, you know, 200 bucks doing your creative side gig for the first six months, you know, and leveling up eventually. I was doing some research for one of my school projects and I came across this female Japanese poet from the 20th century, I think, sometime in the 1900s. And she's actually this famous female poet, but her entire life, she was a bank clerk. And she just wrote poems on the side. And I thought that was really cool. And she's like kind of known as like the bank poet. Should we talk a little bit about the stories that were published in last week? Yeah. We finally published The Modern Creator's Paradigm. I say finally. I mean, other people don't know this, but internally this got changed quite a little bit (laughs) between the original idea and the final outcome. Yeah. And... It made me realize, and you know what? I have no problem admitting this because I've always felt as though that's very much, yeah, like when we first started and as we went through the process, and if you haven't read The the Creator's Paradigm, basically what it was, it's kind of a reaction and a dissection of how we create things currently and the flow and structure and why things are the way they are. I mean, for us, there's a certain level of pessimism around most of the stuff that's being created and we feel it's due to a lack of creative accountability. Mm-hmm. And as I was writing it, I was like, man, like my thoughts are all kind of there, but they just, they're not very eloquent. Like they don't really come out as I intended or as I'd wanted. Yeah. Like, that, how do I put this? It's just like, it just wasn't very good, to be honest. I was writing this and like, and, and as a team was sort of like dismantling it, and <laughs> I, I 100% welcome it. It came, I made me realize that, you know, maybe at the end of the day, it's like, 
pieces like these and maybe even the type of quote-unquote stories I want to tell or the content I want to create might need to really fall into very specific lanes because honestly, I'm not really a great writer. Maybe your role has changed. Huh? Maybe your role has changed and also what you practice now is different. Yeah. You write much less than you used to. I was never really a good writer though, I would say. (laughs) I was very formulaic. I think I'm good at identifying what needs to be addressed. But from a creative writing standpoint, I'm not very good. Okay, but okay. what that allowed me to do is like, hey, and I, it took a weight off my shoulders because I felt like if this was done through my lens and my writing, it would have been not awesome, I'd say. So yeah. it was nice to have people like you, Alec, Nate, Scott come in and everyone sort of pick it apart yeah, and also write it in a way that was a lot more engaging to read and hit all, all the various things we wanted to communicate. Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm pleased with it. At first, I was just editing you. And then you you talked to me about it being more like a research paper. And I felt like, yeah, it is. It's kind of like these are the thoughts the entire team has been thinking on. And it, it feels good as a collaborative effort. Uh, we published a new series called Snap to Track, Above the Clouds EP. And this was a new thing we did where we paired a photo series with a music producer. In this case, Christina Choi and Elphick Wu. Yeah. So we paired them together to create a small EP. And Elphick's 100% going to listen to this because obviously he's the one that's going to do the mix down. But honestly, he, he did an awesome job. Like I think that the ultimate, I think that in the very beginning, what I was expecting versus what actually came to fruition was very different in mm-hmm. that I I didn't expect it to have this level of polish and for it to be the way it was. I thought it was going to be a lot shorter and a lot more simple. It's but really the good. the outcome itself, yeah. You know? It's really good. And Elphick, you can I don't plug like, a track in right here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Elphick should definitely plug a track right here. thing too is like you look at the engagement of the Instagram stories and also shout outs to you Sharice for doing a really captivating job with the Instagram stories for this but you could just tell like people were actually listening to the whole thing like yeah the drop-off yeah. percentage was actually quite low yeah. like when you have 550 people and you're only losing like you know 20 people every progressive slide i think that's pretty good it's very good because actually that whole thing comes out to two minutes and 45 seconds and i was like this is really long this is basically a youtube video (laughs) but but i wanted to put all five tracks in and i wanted to give like kind of a preview of the whole ep and it was i'm really happy with it. it huge huge 
props to Christina and Elphick. Yeah. And then lastly, our latest social effects, the podcast by Edward Barnier, a.k.a. Edward KB. Mm-hmm. And Maurice actually one I know really well. He's from Vancouver. I met him through Jeff Hamada when they came. I think they came to Hong Kong. I forget, actually. I, I met him met them as well. In New York. Yeah, he's a really cool guy. And he's and one thing that's interesting about Maurice is he's always been very good at linking Instagram and the very active creating content with a sh- business structure. Yeah. So like I mean, helping creators because of his background, monetize. Right? Actually, this is bad. I don't I don't fully remember his, his background. His background is as a know. venture capitalist. Oh, really? Yeah. I did not know that. Well, yeah. Anyway. Social effects, I think, is also really coming into its own. Now it's been four episodes. I feel like, you know, there's a good sense of it as a season now. We're not even at the end Mm -hmm. of the season, but it feels like coming together. And Edward has the golden voice. Random people hit me up and be like, Edward Barnier's voice is so good. I should tell him more of those. It's been a very long intro. Let's just dive right into it. My topic this week is when healthy skepticism really isn't. And it's based off an article. I don't even know where it came from, to be honest. Like, I think maybe because I'm a member of Medium. So they always send over articles. Yeah, I just feel like I, I use it so often that I generally get guilty if I use something and I don't. Pay for it. Interesting. Sorry, keep going. And I I also feel like, hey, if you're going to run sort of a membership subscription type thing, like you kind of need to walk the walk too and support. So, okay. Anyways, regardless. Skepticism really isn't. Yeah. So, it's an article that discusses what happens when you're overly skeptical of things. So, this is obviously what the title suggests. Uh, I'll start off with this first quote In a lot of ways, skepticism is healthy. It can keep money in your pocket, keep you out of dicey situations, and help you avoid being taken advantage of. But there's a limit. Hone your sense of skepticism too sharply, and it could start to get in the way of your relationships, your personal development, and risks that might be genuinely beneficial for you. According to Rachel Botsman, a lecturer at Oxford's Saeed Business School and the author of Who Can You Trust? A book about the relationship between trust and technology, she had this very interesting quote. She had this very interesting quote that suggests fear and disenchantment are powerful viruses that spread fast and we can become vulnerable to being convinced that something that is positive is dangerous. As an example, she points out to the anti-vaxxer movement, which has this level of deep-rooted skepticism, which makes people untrusting of the medical and science world. So even though vaccines are generally safe, uh, people are just like pushing against it. She goes on to say that skepticism, on the other hand, is a learned behavior. Our skepticism and suspicion often begin when something goes wrong or when we have been let down. It can be something that happens directly to us or someone close to us. So over the course of this interview, it's really trying to kind of unpack skepticism, which I would say that in general, skepticism seems to be an all-time low. Really? I don't know if you feel that way. I feel differently. I feel people generally are not very skeptical. Like, that's why fake news is so rampant, right? Oh, but no. Oh, that's not what I... Huh. Interesting. Well, I think of skepticism in terms of human relationships. I didn't think about fake news as 
when I was thinking about whether skepticism is at an all-time high or low, I was thinking that... What is an example of human relationships and skepticism? Just so I understand better where you're Like if I am in school and I'm not saying that I'm necessarily like this. Hopefully this doesn't come across this way. But if um, a classmate kind of comes up to me and wants to like talk to me about their work or my work, I might think, okay, do they have an agenda? Do they want me the to intention. do something for their project? Or, or yeah, do, the intention. Yeah, right? the intention behind it. I think that's skepticism. But isn't that the same thing as media and fake news where you're questioning the intention of the article or story? Right. But I do agree that fake news is rampant. That's kind of why I see them similar. But at the same yeah. time, I feel like people, when you're in- interacting with someone physically, you're more skeptical than you than people were in the past. Got it. I mean, I saw this from a very sort of umbrella concept. There's one more quote in here before I jump into my okay. own personal thoughts. But neuroscientist Paul Zak said, trust is one of the most precious and fragile currencies we have in our lives. It enables us to take risks and try new things, and it acts as a bridge between the known and the unknown. Being wise about trust doesn't mean being overly skeptical. It means giving trust the time, investment, and care it deserves. The one thing that I found very interesting about this, and like trust as we know it, is among some of the few sort of things in life that are very hard to buy back. So if you become untrustworthy, you can't really buy back trust, right? No. Um, I've seen this a lot just, you know, in a working environment. Like if someone fucks up, it's like, yo, how do you trust this guy to do this uh, properly online? I think it falls in line with some other things like ethics. I don't know if they're necessarily in that same bucket. It's so interesting, but it's like you have to be so consistent in quote-unquote good behavior and you only need one instance of misbehavior for someone to use that. I trust you. Use that to yeah. build up like an image of you. It's like if you're always on time with your group of friends, but then one day you're like an hour late, your friends will only remember you as being late. I don't know. I disagree. I think it depends on what is the... So the reason why I found this whole concept um, interesting, fascinating, and worth talking about was just why are we at a certain point right now where we are... Well, let's put it this way. I position this piece more so on the fact that I think people in general are overly... aren't as skeptical as they should be. As in they don't have that filter up. But I feel like You're the premise the of this side. article was written because people are being skeptical. Yeah, I don't know. But like, I think that for me, it's I, I look at it from... Like I said, I look at it from more of an umbrella concept where it's like... But you don't think we're being skeptical enough. I think that in general, there isn't enough skepticism. Oh, this is so interesting. This is not... I don't know what I expected from this, but this wasn't it. Yeah. Well, I think that maybe it's just the bifurcation of like... It's very clear. The skeptics versus non-skeptics. But okay, try to not think about media for a second. Think about your yeah. human relationships with coworkers and friends and family and strangers and people on the street you meet. Would mm. you say that you are a skeptical person or a... No. Really? I would say that when I meet people in real life interactions, maybe it's just like the types of questions I ask people that I don't, I don't run them through a gauntlet, but I think that you try to... This sounds really bad because it feels as though you're trying to set them up to either be a good person or a bad person. 
But I generally feel as though I can come out of a situation, a meeting, a call or whatever, and have a pretty clear idea of where someone is Mm. and what their intentions are. Mm. But I think that's also sometimes by asking them more complex questions, it kind of forces their hand a little bit. Okay. I don't know. I don't, I, I, I generally feel that way. Like I, I, my, I think Nicole, my wife would say that I'm, I'm really shitty at having street smarts. I disagree. But in general, like you, you kind of are asking people certain questions that aren't easy to answer. And when they're not easy to answer, your, their answer becomes Okay. Part of the so outcome. your evaluation might wind up being that this person is a bad person, but that doesn't mean you are a skeptic. It just means that you have reached what you consider to be a trustworthy evaluation. Yes. Got it. Got it. Because yeah. I guess what I do in contrast is more guesswork, which you would say isn't a very good way of assessing people. But don't you find that interesting when you're in a human interaction with somebody and you're making all these micro calculations at any given moment in time? Yeah. To see what you think they're going to do next, how they're reacting to your questions. Yeah. So you look at someone's delivery, right? If someone is asked a question and they fumble and they're like, uh, 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 mm-hmm. that in itself is is a reason to be skeptical. I mean, there's so right? many things. Humans are really complicated. There are so many things when you meet a person for the first time, you're like very quickly building this picture of who you think this person is and making adjustments to that based off of, like you're saying, their reactions or their body language or their tone of voice. And I can't explain exactly how that picture happens, but I would say that unlike you, I might not ask all these probing questions immediately and therefore I spend more time guessing what a person is like before I feel yeah. like I have a good picture. Part of me wanted to talk about this because it kind of related a little bit to the whole creator's paradigm. And mm-hmm. if you haven't read the creator's paradigm, a big part of what we talk about is just having a general sense of accountability around the things we create mm-hmm. and 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 figuring out people's intentions, right? Because mm-hmm. that's what I think part of skepticism mm. entails is just like understanding intentions. Yeah. I mean, on that, on that front, I would definitely agree. I mean, I also helped write that piece. And I think we, in our consumption of media and all of our interactions online and in digital devices, we are not skeptical enough. E- even if I seem to believe that in human interactions, there is still a healthy amount of skepticism, in my opinion, in terms of reading things and consuming images like we say in this piece, we just seem to have like turned off our critical faculties. I I came across this quote that I think is really interesting because it highlights a little bit sort of uh, what it means to have this level of trust because that's something that Zach, uh, one of the the neuroscientists mentions, is that trust is such a a key pillar of the world around us, right? Most recently, the, um, the founder of Craigslist has been donating a bunch of money towards journalism projects that he feels need it and are important for a functioning society. And he said that my interest in helping trustworthy journalism results from a history class where Mr. Anton Schletzky, my teacher, helped me understand that a trustworthy press is the immune system of democracy. Mm. There's more to it, but I just think that was a really powerful answer. It's like, 
if you don't have a functioning media that keeps people accountable, then things kind of fall to shit. Since we already talked about the creator's paradigm quite a little bit and this idea of trustworthy media, why don't you talk about the conclusion of our piece, which is kind of like our proposed solution? So in the concluding part of the creator's paradigm, we basically close off with the concept of really reviving this this element of creative accountability and basically questioning and demanding more qualitative things from the stuff that's being put out there. So that means that having a little bit more intention, vision, and understanding as to why this needs to exist and putting it out in the world in hopes of obviously bettering the landscape. I think that's part of it. And while it's not easy by any stretch, and I think this was really well put, it's like, it's probably financially unrewarding in the short to medium run. By virtue of actually subscribing to this level of consideration, whether it be skepticism or just like putting the bar higher for things that are being put out there, I think the ultimate outcome is a lot better across the board. And if a quote unquote community increases in its sort of overall standing, I think what's also fascinating is that in a community, the one thing you put in has the ability to affect not just yourself, but all the participants within the community. Mm. The output exceeds the input of one person. Yeah, I think it's, I I mean, I obviously agree with the things you said because I let this be published, but I think it's really funny as an aside, if anyone has read the article that we actually linked to, their conclusion and what we've just concluded are very different things. So yeah. it's you used you use this article as a launch pad for your own agenda here. My subject today is foundations established by U.S. artists have become a $7 billion philanthropic force. And this is a piece from Artnet. I like the Artnet pieces. I've said this before because I feel like they're a very good mix of numbers and statistics, but then also like drawing conclusions from these numbers. So the stats part of this is artists endowed foundations have had their assets rise 120% between 2011 and 2015, according to new research. Contemporary art continues to do well value-wise. Like, so the valuation of contemporary art continues to increase and more and more artists are now having commercial success during their lifetimes. So they are making increasingly large amount of money off of their work. So as a result, a lot of these artists that are doing well have started their own foundations focused on cultural philanthropy and putting money back directly into cultural initiatives. And they're really focused on, on arts. So kind of like, okay, we got money from the art world and we're putting it back into the art world. Assets owned by artists endowed foundations, as I said, rose 120%. So their most recent valuation was 7.66 billion. In comparison, assets of all foundations that weren't artists started across the nation grew 40%. So it's very clear that like the artists endowed foundations are doing better and they're doing better plus making a bigger impact. So though there are fewer of them, their work is impacting a larger amount of people and they're really 
kind of leading the way in terms of kind of considering the U.S. artistic heritage and philanthropy. The reason I was interested in this partially is because the foundations that Artnet um, called out, or not called out, but the foundations that Artnet mentioned are artists that I'm familiar with. And so it was kind of interesting because I didn't realize that these artists had foundations that were doing this kind of work. For example, Louise Bourgeois, Helen Frankenthaler, Mike Kelly, Leroy Neiman, Irving Penn, Robert Rauschenberg, Murray Sendak, Cy Twombly. And those are quite a good, I like these artists. <laughs> I like their work, like the, this contemporary work from the States and the fact that they're putting money back into grants and into education programs is really encouraging for me. So I thought of this piece as like a very positive, optimistic piece. Part of the other reason I've been thinking about this, I've been talking a lot about sustainability with people and kind of about the world ending, <laughs> which we talked about as well on Making It Up, I think, last episode. We were like, who knows if yep. we make it another thousand years, yep. right? So in light of that, I was thinking these foundations are probably putting more money into cultural initiatives because there's a sense of urgency. Well, the thing that, that struck me as you were going through that list was this is the opportunity for an artist to potentially create something with an impact that exceeds their time on this planet, right? Oh, so yeah. If you set up a fund that is a shitload of money, like, and you have a clear vision as to how it's going to run, like, there's a chance that that could potentially continue to, to have a significant impact down the line. Yeah. I mean, I think it does two things. Like, creating foundations also creates jobs. So they're giving people jobs immediately in the art world. And then, like you said, they're also creating their own legacy or trying to create their own legacy. Yeah. And I, I thought it was interesting because if you think about where the money's coming from, it's this cycle. Yeah. And the cycle is the money's coming from obviously the affluent or people that have money. They're buying the art and they're inadvertently filtering it back into the system, if that makes sense. Well, so I don't know if I'm I'm sure there I don't know if there's a more efficient way for it to happen, but No, I think this makes sense because it's like the people who buy the art, they buy established artists, right? Where they're where the pieces are valued really highly, you know, millions of dollars. And then the artist, it's their choice, you know, instead of pocketing that money or whatever percentage actually goes into their pocket, they can put it towards young people or people without the necessary means or just unknown up and coming people, you know, it's, they mm -hmm. don't need to feel like, oh, we can only put our money towards things that are established. I'm curious, like under what circumstances someone creates a foundation too. Obviously the people that you listed, like I'm less familiar with those artists, but are they all really big artists? They are pretty big artists. I'm just going to tell you that. You can only really achieve this sort of foundation goal. Yeah. If you achieve a certain level of fame. That's success, the other right? thing. Yeah. That's the other thing that was kind of interesting too that Artnet mentions is that the number of artists endowed foundations is small. It's not that big, like 400 some in the US, but proportionally, most of them are big in terms of valuation. Mm -hmm. So the number of large artists endowed foundations defined as worth $50 million or more has grown over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? 
So there's mm -hmm. an unequal distribution. And I was thinking that it's probably because, I mean, I feel like you would know better, but you need that amount of money in order to do something. And it's almost like anything smaller doesn't work. This, this is interesting because it relates back to my segment and how I talked about how the founder of Craigslist was basically supporting journalistic projects that he felt were moving the needle. Mm -hmm. One of the questions in the piece was like, how do you decide which projects you fund, right? Yeah. And that's one part of this whole narrative, I think is actually quite murky when it comes to seeking grants and and trying to get money. That's true. It's like the process is quite murky. And also it's an art in itself to be a grant writer. Mm -hmm. So that to me is something that perhaps needs to be modified, changed. I don't yeah. know. I just I mean, think that in yeah, general. I mean, you're right. I, you are right. I don't have any information on where their money specifically is going. I have these terms like grant making, education programs, archives, exhibitions, and residencies, but I don't know who these people benefit. I don't know what population benefits from these things. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I cannot say what the selection process is like. They are private no. foundations. So there is this nature, right, of like application per, for private money. I mean, no one's saying that the money should come very easily. But I think it definitely is in support of people that know the game. I guess I would say that, well, I don't know. I guess because last week you mentioned net positive which we used to talk about quite a lot and then sort of fell out of our vocabulary, sort of fell out of our vocabulary. But I would say that this is still net positive because it's, it's like the thing about billionaires. These artists are not billionaires themselves, but they have a significant chunk of money and their desire to put that money back into the art world as opposed to keeping it for themselves is a good thing. Whether mm -hmm. they could be giving it out in a way that is better, probably. I can't say. I don't know their process. But the lack of transparency would suggest that there is probably room for improvement. Should we cap it off for the day? Yes. Old man Eugene's got to go to bed soon. Yeah, man. You've really overexerted yourself today. <laughs> If you are interested in hearing more about making, reading, and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at makein.com. M-A-E-K-A-N. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us individually at sharice at makein.com or eugene at makein.com. But an easier way is to just DM our Instagram account at Macon, M-A-E-K-A-N, and someone will always respond. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>